Have you ever wondered if you could make a difference? This podcast brings you inspirational people who are making a tremendous difference. We will also be talking to experts in the field of creating the mindset you need so that nothing holds you back from making your vision a reality right now. Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast. And now, here's your host, Michelle Dutro. Welcome to this week's episode of the Game Changer Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited about today's guest because it brings up a question that I get asked a lot about, and it's one that I wrote to this week's blog on that uh, just came out on today, Monday, and it is regarding your life story and the experiences that you've had and what you've gone through and truly making that or incorporating that into your mission, into your purpose, into your reason for being here. And today's guest is certainly all of that and then some. He absolutely represents, in my opinion, what it is to truly be a game changer. And it's one that I hope you listen to through your own lens of what have I gone through, what have my experiences been, and how can I bring that forward into the world and truly make a difference in somebody else's life in some way so that maybe they don't have to struggle to the same degree that I did. So... Let me give you a little bit of his background. It's quite fascinating, really. And you've got to stick through this to the point of his rock bottom point. Now, I'll tell you, his rock bottom low is lower than I think maybe most people's. But when you hear the stories about the incredible rampant usage of heroin in our country and the drug problem that we have that is certainly not getting better, but, you know, in my opinion, getting a lot more severe with what is happening in families being destroyed and what is happening in our school system. It's just, it's just an atrocious scene. And so here is somebody, Evan Bullet James, who in his way is making a significant difference. And like I said, in my opinion, is an incredible game changer. So he's a leading expert in the field of extreme drug intervention services and the star of A&E's newest series, Extractors. In this series, Bullet and his team locate, intervene, and extract young men and women whose uncontrollable addiction to drugs or out-of-control behavior has led them into situations they can no longer get themselves out of. Founded in 1966, Extreme Intervention specializes in crisis intervention and transport services, missing person investigation, and recovery and legal advocacy services. Bullet's company has also managed some of the most complex, high-profile drug, alcohol, sexual addiction, gang, missing persons, and cult intervention cases in the world, helping over 1,200 families both here in the U.S. and overseas. So it's, it's incredible what he's doing, but I'll tell you, he couldn't be as effective at what he's doing had he not gone through very similar situations himself as a kid. So like I said, listen to this story in this interview through your own lens of how you can make your story truly be impactful for somebody else. Thanks for tuning in. All right, Bullet, with all of that resume of a background, and it is an amazing one, what else should the audience know about you that maybe I haven't already told them? Well, there's probably no way that you could have told them that um, a week ago yesterday, the love of my life, uh, whose name is Lauren Nicole, um, who's one of the extractors on our TV show and part of the extreme intervention team, probably about, I guess yeah, it had to be about nine months ago, we decided to have a baby. And on last Thursday, we had a routine doctor's appointment to go 
check on the baby. And the doctor said, you know, um, Lauren, your blood pressure is a little higher than I would like it to be. Uh, let's, let's go next door to the hospital and get that checked out. And approximately eight hours later, our baby boy, Jason, was born. And we're actually at home with him right now. He's eight days old. And there's no way anybody could have known that because it's, it's happened pretty recently. Well, that is exciting. Congratulations. I think for a female, for somebody who has a couple of kids, that's the best way. Then the agony of when is the day going to get here is that for her, it just, uh, it's, it happened. So, well, I mean, it was kind of scary because it wound up, you know, requiring a, a C-section and there was some urgency behind it. And I, it's our first child. I had never been through it before. So I was unaware of certain things that were going to happen. And if this happens, I mean, they, they presented in, in a very um, positive light that, that this is a very safe way to go about things. But as you get into it more, there's always the contingencies. If this happens, it means this. And there's a possibility that you may not be able to be in the room and it, it, in that in that regard, it was it was quite I was quite anxious. And and what's uh, something is that even as an expert at you know crisis intervention and dealing with crisis, it, it's amazing how life throws us things that uh, are quite challenging to deal with, even for those of us that are experts in dealing with crisis. I, I mean, I'm. I'm readily to admit uh, that I may have some control issues. So uh, being asked or potentially being asked to stay outside of the room while everything is, is, is going down would be nearly impossible for me as if I, me being in the room actually helped the doctors at all. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that it, that it helped Lauren. Well, I'm sure that it did. Okay. Since we are just leaving off of uh, what it is to deal with crisis, even when it is unexpected and unplanned for, let's launch right in to exactly what you do, why you do it, how you do it, and the whole backdrop of the resume that I gave. So obviously you are no stranger for crisis, whether it's uh, one that you are diving headstrong into or one that shows up out of nowhere. Your life didn't start out as a rescuer, if you will. Your life started out um, needing to be the one that, I mean, truly, you needed some rescuing yourself or some help yourself, right? I mean, way back in the day, um, if you could, take us back to, you know, what you would consider the darkest of your days and when you had that moment of, this just can't go on. What was that for you? Well, there were two kind of um, crossroads of my life now in retrospect when I, you know, think about it. One was at about the age of 12 years old. Uh, my mother and father had been fighting quite a bit. A lot of their fights had to do with my older sister, Valerie, who was about six or seven years older than I and, and um, was we were living in New York. Um, my parents were, were flower you know, from the 60s and, and Val was a flower child and it was all about Woodstock and and uh, marijuana and, you know, free love. And I mean, it was a beautiful way to grow up. It really was. I couldn't have had a, a, a more kind of eclectic childhood. But Valerie was getting a little bit deeper into drugs. And at one point uh, with her girlfriends, they slipped a tab of acid into my orange juice 
And Valerie was from my mother's first marriage and my father really um, went ballistic after that happened and he sent Valerie away to treatment. Um, when that occurred, my parents were fighting a lot. I would hear them fighting a lot and it never got better. And my dad had a business trip out of town. I went with him and when we came back home and I walked through the door with my father, the house was empty and my mother had left. And I knew at that point, I knew at that moment intuitively that my life would never be the same. That was a that was a turning point of my life. And, you know, ultimately, my father and I came out to California and there's a whole you know story about what happened once we got to California and leading up to the, the next crossroads of my life, which I'll, I'll share with you, was after I had delved into my uh, addiction uh, in the early 80s, having been a, a very well known and respected high school sports star in Los Angeles, uh, the leading scorer in the state in basketball in, in 1982, uh, all city, all West side, a lot of accolades, but I was introduced to, to drugs, smoking marijuana, drinking, and ultimately led me to losing my college scholarships and uh, experimenting with smoking cocaine. And once I started smoking cocaine, my life unraveled to the point where on October 26th of 1987, I'd actually commandeered a 76 station uh, gas station bathroom in Hollywood. And I was really sick in my addiction. I mean, I was actually probably dying with how much cocaine I was smoking and uh, nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. I didn't want to have anything to do with myself, my father, uh, may his soul rest in peace, had learned his tough love lesson through Al-Anon. And I was living in this bathroom and I really wanted to die that night. I hadn't reached out to God in a long time, but I wandered out of that bathroom on a rainy night trying to get hit by a car in traffic, asking cars to just run me over, put me out of my misery that I didn't deserve to be alive anymore. I, I hated what I felt inside. I hated the way I looked when I looked at myself in the mirror. And I remember there was a church up on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Gardner. And I figured if God was going to listen to my prayers, that maybe a church was a good place to go. And I wandered over to the church and out in front of the church, I saw these people smoking cigarettes and they were drinking coffee and there was just something kind of warm and inviting about it and, and safe and out of the rain. And so I, I walked over there and this guy came up to me. I'll never forget his name. His name was John Finger. He had a uh, he stuttered when he talked and he said, my, 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 my name is J John Finger and this is a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Why don't you come on in, brother? And that wow. was uh, that was October 26th of 1987. And that's the last time I ever got high. And the reason I never got high again wasn't because life hasn't thrown me a lot of curveballs in my almost 29 years of being clean, because a lot of people would say you may have justification to get high with some of the things that's transpired in my clean time. But I never felt like I had the right to dismiss the magnitude of that moment and that God, you know, I kind of found God. Um, and God was there in, in, in such a, uh, you know, noticeable and, and profound fashion. So at what point after all of this taking place, did you get to the point that you thought, 
I need to take what has happened with me and help others through this? I think it was more of a, a uh, natural progression. Um, and I say this to, to people often, they're like, you know, why do you do this? And I kind of half-heartedly say, well, what else would a guy like me do? But the truth of the matter is early on in my recovery, some of the only jobs somebody like me with my kind of disparate background and, and some of the, I guess, some of the, the check marks and red flags that I've had in my history as an addict, uh, working in recovery was a, a, a perfect fit and one of the only jobs people like me got in that time frame. And, and as, as time went on, and I started to kind of move up the ladder, if you will, in working in recovery. Um, I was observant and and uh, recognized certain, I think, pitfalls in recovery, certain um, kind of ch uh, chinks in the armor to help people, and started to um, you know figure ways to, to to effectively help people and connect with the disenfranchised because believe it or not even in recovery where it should be inclusive sometimes it can be very exclusive and that's really been one of my core issues my entire life is that I've always wanted to feel a part of and when I saw that that wasn't always the case even in recovery I wanted to, to do my part to uh, uh, kind of tighten the gap in that regard. So now take us to the next leap, which is what you're doing now and how in the world that came about. Well, there was a couple of leaps before that, that I think may be significant. I mean, my father um, was, my father and I were very close, extremely close. He was my best friend. He was a brother. He was my father, he was my mentor, he was my hero. Um, and I mean, there were a lot of years in, in life where I didn't listen to his wisdom, but along my journey in, in, in recovery, one day he said to me, in only the way that, that my dad could say to me, you know, man, you're doing really good and uh, you know, you got a lot of street smart and you're staying clean. But you should put some education behind that so you can really kind of, you know, move up the ladder and make a difference. And I and I I took those words to heart and I, you know, with his help, enrolled in UCLA and got certified as a drug and alcohol counselor and then got certified as a family systemic intervention specialist under the auspices of Sierra Tucson and was able to land a job at the world-renowned Betty Ford Center. And that's when things really kind of um, progressed from a career standpoint, not so much that I evolved career-wise tremendously at the Betty Ford Center, although I was part of um, developing their intensive outpatient program for adolescents, and that was quite a wonderful experience. But it was, a long, it was around that time that, um, I kind of had a reputation at the Betty Ford Center. They called me the AMA blocker. So against medical advice, when people wanted to leave treatment, they would call in me to talk them out of leaving treatment. Yet I would see this really uh, dapper gentleman show up at, at the Betty Ford Center. It would seem like once a week with his beautiful suit on and he had this very kind spirit about him and this rapport 
with um, people that were coming into treatment. And I, I, I kind of became fascinated by who is this who is this mystery man? What is he doing? How is he? Why is this same man bringing all these people into treatment and the way he does it and how he goes about his business? And I learned uh, a short time later by actually going up to him instead of wondering who he was. I, I asked him what he was doing and what it was all about. And his name is Ed Storty. And he's, as you may know, a very well-known interventionist and I would say that was quite inspiring to me because it was a, around that time that I made a decision. You know what? I don't want to be the AMA blocker anymore. I want to help people get to treatment, not talk them out of going to treatment. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for the Betty Ford Center. I tried to navigate my way through being able to do both while I was working there, but they have, you know, their policies and that wasn't part of it. And I, I, I took a chance and I, uh, you know, went out on my own and, and with the little money that I saved, kind of started marketing myself as as this intervention person. And that was the really leap of faith and, and, and the beginning of the, the journey that I'm, you know, still on. So how in the world do you get from that to a show? Well, at that time, I hadn't developed the extreme intervention model. Um the extreme intervention model basically came from me continuing to do kind of standard interventions, but realizing that in particular for young adults being knuckleheaded like I was, that sitting around with family, holding hands and singing Kumbaya, my Lord, as the sun majestically rises up in, in, in the background. And then there's this kind of cathartic, um, emotional crescendo where every tears come out and everybody agrees to go to treatment isn't always effective for a 22 year old dope fiend living on the streets of Seattle who's been in and out of prison, but his doesn't mean his parents don't love him. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a chance. And I realized that at that age, one of the things that could be really effective is, is leverage. And that means kind of illuminating to that 22-year-old the, the proverbial fork in the road between prison institutions or a chance at recovery. And, you know, sometimes it's not who I have on my team, although I give them a tremendous amount of credit. I realize to illuminate and, and, and to, you know, put in a picture frame to this addict on the street, um, where he's at in his life and kind of have teeth behind it that, that I should, you know, start to train some off-duty police officers, some, some DEA agents who I was able to reach out to through mutual friends and, and whatnot. And at least nothing else psychologically really helped paint the picture to this addict on the street. But what I have found, and I don't mean to uh, minimize anybody's involvement on, on my, my team whatsoever, because they're all tremendous in their own way. We are a team and everybody has a, a very defined role and we work pretty seamlessly together at unraveling complex interventions. But sometimes it really is a unspoken relatability that transpires between that addict and, and myself, where they know I'm not talking down to them, where they know I'm not the enemy. It's, it's almost like it, 
I give them the opportunity to wave, to surrender and wave the right, the white flag without even sometimes having to say surrender and wave the, the white flag. And I think a lot of that has to do with straight up old school, New York City, Narcotics Anonymous, and you know, Los Angeles, Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step meetings over and over and over again, sponsoring people. And it's, it's in my blood. And I think that that um, connects with them on a, on a soulful level that is unexplainable unless you've had that experience. Right, exactly. And uh, I get that completely on relatability. And I think that people in an instant either know that you get it because you've been there, which is very different from having some level of understanding because you read about it in a textbook someplace. N no doubt about it. So if, if there's a parent, and I'm going to ask you from a couple of different angles, if there's a parent right now listening and uh, they have a very good indicator that their child is really struggling with uh, drug abuse in some way, or they're worried that they're about to, what advice would you have for that parent right now before they wind up with their kid missing who's living out of a bathroom like you were? It's probably the same advice that I've had for 15, 20 years or so. And that is if that you feel like the other shoe is going to drop, more than likely it is going to drop. And you need to ask yourself, are you willing to, you know, pay the bails bondsman? Are you willing to, to pay um, a lawyer to, to get him out of jail? Or more tragically, are you willing to pay for the funeral? And I don't necessarily say I don't necessarily have to get that dramatic with with family. Sometimes I do. I mean, clearly, my job is not a person, you know, a, a um, popularity contest. I can't always say what's going to soothe a parent in the moment. Sometimes it's just straight, you know, tough love type of talk to get them to. Because, I mean, one of the things that happens and, and some of, you know, us in the field, we, we talk about it. And I don't want to say we joke about it, but we recognize it is a, a, a family member will call and they'll say 37 times. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And 37 times you will give them good orderly direction, which also in the program spells God. And I'm not saying our direction is godlike, but I'm just saying that's what we wind up giving them is good orderly direction, really concise um, counsel on how to approach what's going on. And inevitably, the next thing out of their mouth is, I don't know what to do. And I understand that's a product of being overwhelmed and whatnot. But I think a, a lot of what, especially in the intake process over the telephone, is trying to corral them and keep them focused. And I'm, I'm not trying to um, subtract their emotion because ultimately their emotion is going to be a huge part of why we're going to be successful. But it's our job to to kind of help navigate them through the storm at, at that point and, and keep the focus on the solution because it, it is human nature. All of us have the, the nature to want to focus on the problem. And it's sometimes difficult to get into the solution. So. 
I know that I'm going to ask you for something that you're going to say, look, every case is different, but I'm, I want to ask for a generality, a broad-based stroke here on exactly this, on what can be done. From my experience and the people that I have talked to and worked with, there seems to be a bit of a divide, typically speaking, between mom and dad on mom, typically, again, being the enabler. So no matter how times he, uh, let's just son or daughter, whomever it is, uh, you know, is kind of uh, coming and going through the home, right? They're there for a week and then they're gone for a few weeks and they're back for a day and they're gone for three days. And every time they're back, stuff is missing. Cash is missing. Stuff is missing that can e easily be sold. And one of the parents that is, we've just got to continue to love and embrace and be there so that we aren't identifying the body in a morgue. And the other parent saying, look it, as long as there's an enabler, this is going to continue. Tough love, change the locks, no more coming over until this person has proven that they are clean and sober for a minimum of whatever time. Again, I know that every situation is different, but by and large, is it one or the other? Is there a balance between the two? Where would you just say, generally speaking, to that person that is way off the rails and literally will do anything for their next fix as a parent? Is there a, is there a right answer? Well, I mean, I think the right answer is once again, not to sound like a jerk, but it's like what you're doing working. I mean, because if it's working, then there's nothing really for us to, to talk about. If it's not working, then let's let's open up the you know, let's open up your mind, please. Let's open up the playbook. And my job is to get the family unified. And that's one of the things that is very important in the beginning process is that I really try hard to find that common ground so the family can be unified because that's the only way we can be successful. Right. No, I, yeah, I agree, which is why I brought that example up because that's its own different dynamic of a problem entirely, which is its own problem. Okay. Let me run this through a different aspect. Let's say it's a friend. Now, this isn't a parent, but you see a friend, you know, drifting farther and farther away from the normal circle of friends, and you can tell they look worse and worse whenever you do see them. Is there something a friend can do? I mean, from your perspective, was there something that one of your friends could have done for you back in the day, or were you just headed down a path and no matter what anyone said, nothing was going to stop it? That's an excellent question. It really is because... I don't think anybody can be definitive about that answer. I think there's certain individuals where maybe a therapeutic confrontation from a friend to uh, a wake up call, if you will, to get their attention may be very effective. There's also a school of thought within Narcotics Anonymous program and the 12 steps that each addict needs to have their own experience and has to hit bottom. And I don't mean bottom has to be um, living in a gas station bathroom, a bottom could be, I mean, we talk about a spiritual malady and I'm not talking about religion. I'm just talking about a connection with, with a higher being than, than oneself, whether that be a group of people, whether it be the ocean, whether it be palm trees, whether it be uh, children holding hands in the park, whether it be the sound of an ice cream truck on a sunny day, whatever that feeling is that you know you're outside of yourself and you're connecting with, with the world and you're at peace and you have love in your heart. To me, that's a, that's a higher power. And for me, I needed to hit, I needed to have my own experience to get to the point where I connected with that spirit that I always believed in, but I had thought forgotten about me. But I have seen other people who have somebody in their life that were able to, like I said, therapeutically confront them. I think 
not shaming them is in, is imperative to have any chance to um, affect somebody that that's struggling with with addiction. But I think it can work both ways. So, if someone's listening right now, and they whether it's a friend, a you know a, a sibling, a son or daughter, and they want to learn more about what you're doing, they want to. I mean, certainly the the show that you have on. Um, a and E, but with what you're doing and the work you're doing, if they do want to learn more about this, um, how can they best find you and the work that you're doing? They can best find me and, and, and my team either two ways. They can go to two different websites. They can either go to extremeintervention.com and, or they can go to our nonprofit arm, which is taps14.org. That's T-A-P-S-14.org. And uh, I want to say a little something about TAPS, if I may, if, if, this, if, if this is the time to do so. Sure. Uh, TAPS has been in existence for approximately 20 years. And I think TAPS is probably one of the most unique yet um, sadly poorly recognized nonprofit organization that's in existence because we've been on the front lines, I like to say, trying to facilitate preventative medicine for youngsters and young adults in in peril for 20 years and been running on fumes with an occasional individual donation here and there. And we have about 40, 50 cases on backlog, all deserving youngsters that need help, that have no funding for treatment, that have no funding for extraction, intervention, transportation to treatment. And all we do is is scrape and claw to try to get our message out into the universe. So maybe we'll be fortunate enough to have some kindred spirits that will um, help us help kids. And I think for me, that's a perfect segue into the gratitude that we have for the A&E network for allowing us to um, film this show, The Extractors, because The Extractors, us, are basically the same as TAPS. It's the TAPS family um, doing the extractions on The Extractors. And one of the things that was so important to us was that kids and families that normally wouldn't be able to receive help through A&E's generosity were able to receive help and get intervention, extraction, treatment services. And secondly, TAPS was able to raise some awareness and, and get, you know, maybe a little bit of sunlight on it so people be, could become more familiar with, with what we do because there's nobody else in the world that has a nonprofit that goes into dangerous situations and pulls kids out of motel rooms or alleys or rooftops. You know, sometimes the intervention's not going to come to you. And as much as I love Ed, and I do love Ed, Ed Storty, he talks about intervention and treatment being a gift and it's all very formal and it's all very kind and it's beautiful and he does it eloquently. But like I said, there is that there is um, there are those youngsters that don't fit into that mold because life isn't always a mold. Sometimes um, situations occur, people are missing, people are, are, are not in a fixed location, the situation is dangerous. Who is going to go in and, and, and get those people at that time? We are. TAPS is. And how does TAPS get funded? How do we 
help as many people as possible. Well, part of that is the incredible opportunity A&E gave us with this show to bring, you know, uh, to, to bring to light what it is that, that's going on and, and what we're doing and, and people like you that are allowing me to, to speak about who we are and, and what we're trying to accomplish and what our mission is and what our cause is. No, I appreciate it. And it is a tremendous problem. I mean, you know, now we have heroin that's just off the rails in um, what's happening across the country. And for those, uh, this will all be in show notes. So if you are so moved to help out in any way, I do hope you do so. TAP stands for Teen Adolescent Placement Services, in case you're wondering what that reference point was. And I appreciate the work you're doing immensely. And if someone is listening right now, who, you know, is thinking, I'm just one person, I'd like to make a difference, I'd like to help in some way. And they're thinking, but I'm just one person, what can I do? If there was one piece of advice to somebody who feels that way right now, what would that, what would that piece of advice be to somebody to uh, maybe get them to think differently about being just one person and whether or not you can actually make a difference in the world? Another, another fantastic question and another question that's not necessarily a simple answer, um, my, my mind kind of scanned in a lot of different directions when you asked that question. Once again, not trying to talk about religion or politics per se, but I look to a guy like Bernie Sanders that if he felt that way, maybe some of the issues that he's raised would, would never have been raised and, and the type of momentum and spirit that come about when he has his rallies and his, you know, um, his speeches, if he felt that just one person, what can I do? Then all of these people wouldn't be affected by it. I know that, you know, on a much smaller level that my team and I have, have been involved in successfully helping over 1200, um, kids since we started doing this. And, um, one would say that if I would have accepted, kind of accepted my fate as what I thought I deserved, which was a, a, a no good cocaine addict who deserved to die in the bathroom. And I kind of had um, had really sunk into that being my core belief almost 29 years ago, then maybe I mean, maybe somebody else would have helped these people, but maybe not. And so. I think that we all can make a difference and I would hope that in hearing my story and hearing where I came from, that in that somebody um, will find possibly a little bit of, of um, inspiration to know that they can do whatever they want, wherever they've been, doesn't mean that that's who they are. And you walked perfectly into my final question when you had just referenced about what you used to believe to be true back in the day about who you were or your reality or maybe your lot in life. So obviously that's no longer the same belief system. So if there's one thing that you absolutely believe to be true now, what is that? Well, there's a couple of things that I absolutely believe to be true. And I don't mean to sound like a bumper sticker, but they're kind of the, the motto that I live by or I really try to live by, and they're deep in my heart and they have been instilled in me by my, my late father. And it's kind of our, our I don't know, our, uh, our calling card. It's a, it's a couple of sayings. Uh, one is, it's easier to build a child than to repair a man. 
the other is you can't squash young hope and expect a future. And I, I really do believe that um, um, if you travel down a road and that road has no heart, then that road must become an exit. And I'm only interested in dealing with people with heart. I'd rather be truthful and sincere and um, deal with people who are uh, um, working with me on, on, a, on, a, uh, on a heartfelt, um, authentic level than, than anything else. And, you know, I, I said this to uh, a colleague of mine today, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting for this cause. I'm going to keep fighting to, to help kids. I'm going to keep fighting for TAPS. Uh, until I can't fight anymore. And uh, that's something that I'm sure I was not thinking, uh, you know, 30, 31 years ago when I was running the streets of L.A., you know, making moves and robbing dope dealers and doing all the crazy stuff I was doing back then. That, that was probably the last thought on my mind. The only thought on my mind is how I was going to get high. And even when I was getting high and I had a lot of drugs, I was still thinking about how I was going to get more drugs. So, in that regard, I've, I've come a long way. So I appreciate this time so much, and I know that you have inspired people, and you're exactly right. Every single person can in some way make a difference, no matter what their backstory is. Now, I know I said that was my last question, but I had every intention of asking this right out the gate, Mr. Evan Bullet James. What does Bullet stand for? Where did that come from? It was... Uh, given to me as a nickname uh, when I was part of a, a street gang in West Los Angeles as a uh, as a young adult, and I think for my well-being and and everybody else's well-being, it would probably be best to just let one's imagination go from that point. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a good reminder in your name, uh, you know, that no matter where we've come from, uh, where we can wind up and the good that we can do with, um, with the life that we have. So you are absolutely a shining example of that. And I look forward to checking out this series. Like I said, all of this will be in show notes. So I hope everybody has a chance to continue to check this out. And uh, thank you again so very much for your time. I appreciate it more than you realize. And for everybody listening, check out his website. If you have, you know, any extra money, I can't imagine a more worthy cause. Our kids are worth it and they need our help. So thank you so much, Bullet, for your time today. Thank you so much for a very thoughtful uh, interview. I, I really appreciate the questions and, and um, you know, just uh, like I said, the, the sincerity that, that you, uh, you asked the questions with. And um, I, I really am uh, grateful to have been on your program. Oh, well, thank you, my dear. And uh, get out there and uh, help more people. Appreciate it. I, I will. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening in on this episode of the Game Changers podcast. The next step is to hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode or any of our incredible guests. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you next time.